This episode is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers charges margin loan interest rates from 5.83% to 6.83%? And it's rated the lowest margin fees by stockbrokers.com. Their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. And that's just one of the many reasons clients use Interactive Brokers to trade stocks and futures and options, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. When placing your money with a broker, you need to make sure your broker is secure and can endure good and bad times. IBKR's strong capital position, their conservative balance sheet, and automated risk controls are designed to protect IBKR and its clients from large trading losses. Their prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions IBKR to pay you higher interest and with demonstrated security and financial strength. Of course, we know our rates are always subject to change. Interactive Brokers is a member of SIPC. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to learn more about this. Go to ibkr.com slash compare. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. Rates dip, oil dips, stocks hold. Banks under pressure again. What's the problem now? Analysts cutting estimates at fastest pace since when? And our guest, Tom McClellan, editor of the McClellan Market Report. All this and much more on episode number 842 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. What a rally! I mean, one of the best weeks of the year we had coming into uh, just a crazy amount of sensational turnaroundism, we'll call it, when we saw that the, the 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 feeling was bleak, the sentiment was horrible, the bulls bears, you know, upside down, the the just the concern over what is the future going to hold with all this inflation and the rates and the Fed, people were freaking out. Then here we are, all of a sudden, like snap your fingers and. Sentiment changes on a dime, and that's pretty interesting. I'm happy that we had a great rally. In fact, we were set up pretty well for our clients with that. So that's good. The question is now what, where do we go? We're going to talk about that with our guest, Tom McClellan, today. As an intro, I'm Andrew Horowitz, and thanks for joining me this week, every week. It's going on now, is it 15 years, 16 years, 2007 or so is our first podcast when we asked the question to the uh, the publisher of our book that that said to me, Andrew, you know what? To get your book out there, the first book, The Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success, you know, you should do a podcast. And I said, what's a podcast? But Apple was kind enough to help me. I flew out to Cupertino, spent some time with the people there, and they really got things going. And Microsoft as well, back in the day when they were running the Money Central site. That was a lot of fun. And spending time with them and helping me uh, – produce and find ways in which to get great guests. And that's what started all. So that's great. Millions and millions and millions of downloads and 842 episodes and counting this one. 
And you know, overall that whole time, there's something I got to tell you. I've been doing this for a lot longer, of course, but the one thing that, that you have to recognize and really appreciate is that some things never seem to change. When it comes to markets, when it comes to things, let's talk about, well, it's not, that's not totally fair. Some things, not everything, right? You have to make sure you're clear about this. Things do change, but it really is a function of how much do they change and at what level. Cycles, for example. Yeah, cycles are cycles are cycles. We've talked about that before on the podcast over the years. That doesn't change. There are cycles, but the style of the cycle does change. We have longer, sometimes deeper, or maybe shorter and shallower. That that That's important to recognize, but there's still a cycle going on. Especially when we look, we look at the economic cycle, we have to really think about that as, as something that's to be respected. The fact remains that the economic cycle, when we look at it, is a period of troughs through recovery, through growth and excess, rolling over into questionable times, back down to the bottom of trough, and then we do it all again. Again, whether it's really short whether it's uh, deep, like we saw back in March of 2020, a very short uh, but deep cyclical turnaround, and then a very short and very steep recovery. We're going to talk about this and a lot more. Uh, if you if you want to participate, it's going to be an interactive webinar. What's in store for 2024? Make sure to register over at thedisciplinedinvestor.com. It's going to be on Wednesday, 11-15, 15th of November at 5 p.m. So this is your really your last chance to register. When you're listening to this, if you listen to this early in the week, you can register. If you listen to this late in the week, forget about it. It's done. We did it. But we have um, a few hundred people already signed up. Make sure to get in there and uh, we'll try our best to answer questions that you have. Usually I try to go as long as possible uh, with any questions that you may have on whatever subjects they are. It's 5 p.m. Wednesday, 11.15, over on thedisciplineinvestor.com. Sign up so you can uh, register for free, of course, and uh, find out what's going on. One of the things that I thought was really interesting last week was a piece I came across uh, just a couple of days ago from FactSet. And FactSet puts out some great data, some really interesting data. I actually tried to get one of the analysts on the show, but it seems like nobody at FactSet does podcasts. So if anybody from FactSet is listening or knows anybody at FactSet, knock on their door and say, what the heck? What's the deal? I particularly asked this guy, John, um, if, if he can come on, but somehow he said he doesn't do media. And nobody at FactSet is available to do media. So, Okay. Nonetheless, they put out some really great, well, maybe it's better. Maybe it's better that they don't spend their time doing that. They only spend their time doing the research. The fact is that the stuff that they do and what they put out, really, really good, really tight. And it was interesting what I read because what's happening right now, and let me give you the headline first, and then we can go into it. The largest cuts to the S&P 500 EPS estimates over the first month of a quarter since quarter two of 2020. That's the headline. Now, there's two sides to this. When earning estimates rise, when you see that analysts are pushing out, you know, better than um, initially expected earnings estimates for the future, you know, oftentimes what you see is stocks and markets will follow. That's what happens. 
we see that analysts saying, well, you know what? There's going to be better earnings. We might as well get ahead of it as an investor and let's get involved and invest in that. And that's kind of interesting. That's not always the case, um, but it's interesting. There's also the higher chance of, um, of, of disappointment when you actually raise the, the, the estimates because now all of a sudden there's a higher hurdle for an, a, a company to get to in order to meet or beat their respective estimate. Now, the opposite side of this is also true. When you think about where we are on the opposite side of this, we have to think about when earnings estimates drop and if, in fact, markets and stocks follow, oftentimes you're setting up for a positive surprise. And we've seen that. We've seen sandbagging go on by companies, and then that's reflective in the analyst estimate of what the earnings is going to be. And then what we have from there is a situation where all of a sudden everybody's beating like we've been seeing time and time again. Oftentimes you see every quarter, 70%, plus or minus, usually plus, of companies beat analysts' ad estimates, and everybody gets all frothy and excited about that, even though maybe those estimates are lower than a year ago. Just look at what happened with Apple. We're seeing that the continuation of a slide in the overall earnings from Apple, and really, I would say, kind of miserable sales of some of the areas within Apple's total product list, and yet the stock is it dipped for about five minutes, and then it's about 10 points higher now than it was on the day that earnings was, was printed. And here we are in a situation where people really don't care about that. It's more about the buybacks. It's more about the cash on the books. It's more about the fact that sometime, maybe, who knows, one day, someday, Apple will actually turn profitable again. This could be the belly of the trough of Apple's problems. And all along the case, by the way, Apple has come down a little bit, but nothing, I would say, significant to reflect the actual earnings disappointment and the revenue slowdown, sales slowdown they've had over the last couple of years. If it was any other company aside from Apple, stock would be down pretty significantly. But right now, estimates are coming in. They're coming in uh, pretty fast. And markets are pretty steady. Markets are pretty steady. I'm going to go through this really quickly, this piece and try to summarize this for you. Uh, this piece, it, it starts with, given concerns in the market about a possible economic slowdown or recession, have analysts lowered EPS estimates more than normal for S&P 500 companies for the first quarter? And the answer is yes. Because in October, the EPS estimates were lowered for the fourth quarter by a larger margin than average. So when you look at the differentials and how they calculate this, basically the bottoms up, EPS estimate, okay, which is an aggregation of all that, decreased by 3.9% from 57 to 55. Two bucks. Now, if you take two bucks, by the way, just on a quarterly basis, you, if, if you take that and multiply this eight bucks, that's just a round number for the discussion here. That's $8 on an annualized basis, right? $8 on an annualized basis, and you look at that at a 20-time multiple, you know, what are we looking at? We're looking at 160 points on the S&P 500 in theory. That's a very... Back of the napkin, scratch it up, uh, pencil-based view of where we are. But yet, did that happen? Did it not? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. In a typical quarter, analysts usually reduce earnings estimates during the first month of a quarter. And, and during the last 20 quarters, five years, the average declined in the first month by about 1.9%. So what happens is 
when you're looking out further in the future, analysts are a lot more optimistic. And what happens is they start getting a little bit more realistic as they get closer and closer to the date that there's going to actually be the earnings announced. And what happens is they go in and they start adjusting their numbers and the estimates usually have been about, about 1.9%. Here we are at a 3.9% reduction. Now, during the past 10 years, the average decline has been about 1.8. During the 15 years, the average decline has been about 2%. So I would say that if we look at all the different timeframes and we roll them back and forward, basically 2% as a round number is the number we see a reduction. Here we're seeing a 3.9%, 100% increase in the overall reduction on the first quarter, on the first month of the fourth quarter's earnings. So the decline in the bottoms up EPS um, was larger than the five-year average. It's larger than the 10-year average. It's larger than the 15-year average and the 20-year average. What's interesting to note is the, it's, it's, the, it's the largest decrease in the EPS estimate during the first month of the quarter since quarter two of 2020, when that was big, that was down 29%. And we all know what that was from. That was the whole COVID shutdown. But I don't really think that's important to look at because that was an aberration. I much rather look at the longer term averages and the markets don't seem to care. We see eight of 11 sectors have a decrease in their EPS. For that, healthcare is... Um, the worst, down 16%. Healthcare is not performing, if you haven't noticed. The, the overall index. Yes, there are all these obesity and weight loss companies that are that are serving up, you know, whether it's Lilly hit, hitting an all-time high. We're seeing uh, Novo Nordisk. We mentioned we hold that for clients. You know, whether we're looking at, um, you know, some of the other companies that, that are doing breakthrough uh, drugs for this that are starting to come through and, and do really well. There is a lot to be said for that, but that, is still not impacting the entirety of the rest of the companies in the healthcare sector. And there's a lot of different components, not just pharmaceuticals, uh, but also you have, of course, hospitals and things of that nature. The um, utility sector is leading with an increase of plus 1.5%. That's interesting. So uh, estimates declined in, in the quarter four, 2023 by 4%. Um, analysts lowered their their calendar year 2024 by just 0.4%. So something's a little bit amiss. Right now, we're looking at about 246. You know, you take 246, this is the annual. So you take 240, $246 in, in, in aggregate of what it is. So you take 246, and we say, okay, multiply that by an 18 handle. You got 4428. So all things being equal in a very good environment, 4400 is an 18. You know, if we slip back and we say, okay, well, you know, here we are in a, in a world where we really are concerned about a recession, you got 3,900 at a 16 multiple. And if the coast is clear and everything is just really hunky-dory and we go to a 20 uh, multiple, you got 4,900, which is probably the long-term, uh, I would say probably most analysts have that as their penciled-in number for the end of 2024. So just a summary of what's going on, and to give you a taste of this, you know, markets, even though there was a lot of pessimism back a month ago or so, really haven't reflected, I, I would say, the, the reality of the situation or the gravity of the situation of higher rates, how that impacts the overall market condition, the overall valuation condition, and valuations haven't come down, just like housing valuations in many places, haven't come down 
because maybe people are asleep at the wheel and don't expect the rate increases to hurt anything. But you know, stock market valuation 101 is always about the relationship of future earnings and, and a risk-free rate of return. Risk-free rate of return went from, I'm going to just throw out a number here, 1% to 4%. Could be 5 That thereby decreases the overall valuation potential. I would think 18 times uh, higher than average on a forward basis seems a little bit unlikely to hold for very long. And then we have our portfolio set for that. You know, the whole point is to be ahead of it just slightly, but also be with it. Something we've talked about for a long time. You want to be in it to win it. And maybe you want to be on the outsides of it as well to not get sucked in in case it all turns out to be one giant pile of quicksand. Something to think about, right? This this concept of one foot in, one foot out, making sure you're playing on the field but not getting trampled on when the crowd starts running the other direction. We're going to get to more with that. Uh, and I have a lot of questions to talk about seasonality in particular and, and areas uh, stemming from, um, you know, where we are right now uh, with our next guest. So let's get to it. But first, I think that we have to talk one more time about my good friends at Interactive Brokers because Interactive Brokers, their clients have access to a vast selection of global fixed income securities in what's known as the Interactive Brokers Bond Marketplace. And what you could do is search their deep availability of over 1 million bonds globally, which is really kind of fascinating. A lot of places only allow you to search for bonds domestically. This is a global opportunity to buy bonds. And the interesting thing to note that is IBKR has no markups or built-in spreads and low, fully transparent commissions on bonds. IBKR displays the highest bids and lowest offers received from the electronic venues. And they access these to provide these right to you, again, fully transparently. In addition, clients can interact with each other by placing bids and offers online to execute their trades. If you're interested at all in bonds, you trade bonds at all, you need to check this out. Learn more at IBKR.com bonds. And our guest today is Tom McClellan. He's the editor of the McClellan Market Report and his companion, Daily Edition. He started the newsletter in 1995, working with his father, Sherman McClellan, who created the McClellan Oscillator and Summation Index, which many of us that uh, enjoy and utilize technical analysis find to be an invaluable tool. And uh, they still work together, trying to figure out the physics of why the markets move when they do, which is going to be uh, a multi-generational multi task, I assume, right? <laughs> Tom McClellan, welcome. How are you? Doing great. Uh, it is a multi-generational <laughs> task, at least for us two. Uh, I don't think my kids want to pick up the ball, but uh, I like solving puzzles, and it, uh, the market gives us puzzles every day. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So, you know, the market is is an interesting um, – it's a unique instrument. It, it's, it's, it's a voting mechanism on, you know, a stock, a – group of stocks called the market on to a lesser extent than it used to be. Um, I, I think the economy, because it used to be a really, you know, the, the, the economy used to, I remember at least the economy used to lead and you used to take your cues and you used to invest accordingly. Things have changed over the years, but one of the things that, that you have to respect is there are trends out there and that's something that you track, right? Sure. Yeah. You make the money in the trends. 
and, but when and concerning the the market versus the economy, what, what I like to say is that there are only two fundamentals that matter when it comes to the stock market. You can forget dividend yield. You can forget book value, uh, earnings. The, the only two fundamentals that matter are number one, how much money is there, and number two. How much does that money want to be invested? Yeah. So if you change either of those, you move the market. The, the point is well taken because there was a, we could just look back only, what, two, three years ago as there was a lot of money out there looking for a home, looking for a way to make more money out of the money itself. And of a course, sudden gush of money. Yeah. yeah. The Fed, they, they created a bunch more money. It had nothing to do. The money didn't have anything else to do. So it pushed up stock prices. So wait a minute. It wasn't all the incredible investment acumen and the, the the great work of people that invest in the stock market making all the money. It wasn't them that had these great ideas. It was really just all this excess money flowing in. In a bull market, everyone's a genius. Everybody's a genius. I know. And and, and it's not anybody's fault when it's a bear market. It's, well, it's, it's the Fed's fault. <laughs> <laughs> Seasonality is kind of an interesting uh, animal to dissect. And uh, this goes right along with trends. So the idea of trends is that obviously you have um, something that's moving in a in a directional way that is consistent over a period of time um, that you can identify and maybe ride that horse as long as it, it it's available to ride till it just drops down um, and get off hopefully at the right time. But seasonality is something we could see for a variety of different reasons. And I want to talk about um, the seasonality that we see now into the near-term future. What Explain some of the things that are out there that are providing you um, a, a generally a bullish potential outlook with the current seasonality. Well, by now, anybody who's listening to your podcast has already heard about the, the best six months of the year, made famous by uh, Yale Hirsch and now continued by his son, Jeffrey Hirsch, who's a good friend of mine. Uh, they have, have help, really helped everybody come to understand seasonality. I'm not a pioneer in the area, but I'm definitely a, an, an end user of it because it it works. There is There are seasonal tendencies in the stock market. A lot of people think that the same seasonal tendencies exist in other markets, but it's not been shown to be as reliable elsewhere like it is in the stock market. And uh, we tend to get a bottom to the to the week period uh, in early October and uh, November and December are bullish months. October was a little bit unusual this time in that we got an extra dip in late October, which the normal uh, seasonal tendencies didn't tell us about. And uh a lot of people went looking for, well, why, why was that deviation from normal happening? And there's an interesting story behind that uh, because we're, we're, the money has come back, rushing back in now and we're back on the seasonal pattern and everything's working fine again. But we had this weird dip in October. Turned out California is to blame. Uh, and the reason the story goes that back in January of 2023, uh, there were a bunch of floods. There was a heavy rain in California, flooding hitting a lot of burned areas. And so there was flooding of rivers and, and a lot of disruption. And so the IRS, out of the kindness of its heart, gave an extension to uh, 51 out of 54 California counties for paying and, and filing their 2022 income taxes. So if you were a, a California taxpayer, you didn't have to file with the IRS 
all the way till October 16th. And that means you didn't have to file your 1040. You didn't have to pay your 2022 taxes. But they also gave Californians an extension on all of their quarterly estimated payments for 2023. And so a bunch of Californians were saying, hey, why should I send my check to the IRS on April 15th when it's normally due? I'm going to let it sit in a money market account or put it in a six-month T-bill and get 5.5% and earn all that interest and file right before the deadline in October. So they all took advantage of the uh, advantage of this. The deficit from the federal government went up because Californians got a lot of billionaires who were postponing paying their taxes. And we saw it in the tax data, the tax receipts data that uh, 2023 was down a lot from 2022 because, in part, Californians were paying late. So what happens then, you, you don't want to be late on the on the deadline on October 16th. So everybody's writing their check on October 12th and 13th. And they're, they're writing their check and they're mailing it off the IRS. So they get it in ahead of the deadline. And when the IRS cashes those checks, then that creates a drain on all the bank accounts of all those Californians who had to write that check because mm -hmm. the bank's got to cover it. So the immediate drain as that money goes through the IRS's hands and then back around in the banks, that created a little bit of an illiquidity event that was not part of the normal seasonal pattern in October, caused a dip into late October. And then when, once that money got back into the hands of the banks, it, uh, they had enough liquidity to help push up stock prices. And we've seen a nice rebound from that October 27th bottom. We've seen nine up days in a row for the NASDAQ, eight up days in a row for the S&P 500. Amazing. Uh, we, saw, we saw breadth thrust signals from the Zweig breadth yeah, thrust Yeah, which signals. is only, that, that, yeah, you, well, that's interesting. It's like, it's only like 12 of them in the last, or something, a very small handful of them in the last decades, right? Only 27 since 1928, which is far as far back as I've gone. The early ones in that whole study didn't work as well as the later ones. So when you, and, and to get a Zweig, breath thrust signal, you have to start from bad breath numbers. You have to start from a, a low point, a, a bottom where the breath numbers have been bad. And then you have to hit a whole bunch of good ones and satisfy some mathematical numbers that are boring to read about on the radio. But <laughs> the basic idea is you go from weak breath to strong breath within a certain amount of time. And that signals a gush of money coming in the market. And it tends to be a, a positive omen for what's going forward. And so we've gotten one of those signals. Uh, we've gotten an overbought condition as a result of all that money come gushing in. And yeah. we're getting a momentary pause in here in mid-November, which is, again, part of the normal seasonal tendency. You get a big surge in late October, early November. You get a pause in mid-November, and then you surge again into December. So the market's following the seasonal pattern very nicely. And it just got a little bit of an enhancement, a little bit of disruption from all those Californians paying their taxes late. So the this wide breath thrust signal, is that is there... What's the similarities or maybe even differences uh, between that and like your summation index, for example? Great question. They're both looking at the same raw data, meaning the number of stocks going up every day versus the number of stocks going down every day, the advances and declines. It's just looking at it with different math. The summation index can act like an accelerometer all the time for what the advanced decline data are doing. The Zweig breadth thrust signal is apl applying some very specific math to look for those instances where you have a big gush of, of liquidity all coming in at the same time to, to do things to the breath data. It's like when you have a tsunami um, and, the, you know, the old story about it was weird how the water moved out before the big tsunami wave yeah, came in. Yeah. That's what is why breath thrust is. You have to have the moving out and then you have the big wave coming in and it takes both, <clears throat> both of those in order to get that signal. So, I mean, it seems like that thrust signal from Zweig is 
it, it, it has to, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this. It has to start with like, it's just a, an ass kicking short squeeze, you know, with everybody saying, Oh my God, I need to go the other way. And then it catapults from there with a follow on of people saying, okay, well I'll get on board. Am, am I wrong? That's true in part because every counter trend rally is going to have some aspect of short, short covering that's going to fuel it. Typically, uh, if it's just a counter trend rally, like we had a lot of, we had a lot of counter trend rallies during the 2008 bear market, mm. you got huge overbought conditions, but you got it really fast. They'd happen in a day or two. And then the, then the buying pressure was done and the, the selling pressure got back going again. And that's why Zweig wanted to see it happen over a, a period of days, not just a little brief counter trend rally. It had to be something with some persistence to it and, and enough oomph to really bend the, the advanced decline data in a meaningful way. Because the counter trend rally that's just on short covering will exhaust itself really fast. Yeah. And so you want to filter those out and say, we, we, want, we want to look for those exceptional conditions that are not just counter trend rallies that have have some oomph behind them. And that's what the signal purports to, to uh, hunt for and, and seems to show a good job of finding. There are other similar signals. Uh, breakaway momentum by Walt Beamer is a, is a similar idea. The Whaley breadth thrust looks at the same data, just in a slightly different way, sniffing for different uh, signals in the math. Uh, but the same idea, you're looking for a big gush of liquidity all coming in at once, which signals that there's probably more liquidity behind it. So as an investor, I'm not asking you to give advice about this, but in theory, a theoretical investor, how do you use the data? What do you actually do? It depends on if you're an investor or if you're a trader, and some people uh, intersperse a little bit of both of those. If you're an investor with a long time horizon, you still don't you still don't want to buy at a at a local top. You still want to look for uh, the soft spots and the buying opportunities. And just as an aside, when my parents started doing their work back in the 1960s, which led to the McClellan oscillator, what back then you weren't, you weren't, nobody was a trader unless you were on the floor because brokerage commissions were like 3%. So you couldn't really trade uh, stocks and, mm -hmm. and everybody was an investor. And, and the key game that they, that they were hunting for, they noticed that about two or three times a year, you'd see a nice low. And, and if you bought at those lows, then you would maximize the dividend yield you got on your investment in stocks because you were hunting for those nice soft spots to buy. Mm -hmm. So even if you're an investor and not a trader, you can still employ things like the annual seasonal pattern to look for when are those lows going to be. You don't have to just buy monthly every every time, all the, all the time and, and forget about it and set it on automatic investment. You can look for those opportunities. You can see, oh, if the market's overbought this week and I got some money piling up, I need to put it to work. Maybe I'll wait until we get to another one of those soft spots before instead of piling in when we've just had a nine-day upstring for the NASDAQ composite. We're going to take a break to talk about something a little bit more personal for a second here, buddy. You know, for you, I've known you for many years, right? How, we go back a number of years. Um, We've done this for a while. Yeah, and, you, and you've always talked about your parents. You've always talked about your parents, you know, and I've, I've always, every time you said the words, my parents worked in this, and I always thought, hey, what was that like? Because uh, how do your parents meet? Do you mind me asking? Um, both my parents are, were the same age. They met at college. My mother went to Pomona College which is one of the six Claremont colleges. And my father went to Claremont Men's College, which oh. is now Claremont, Claremont McKenna College because they admitted women and they still wanted to be CMC. They, uh, they met at a square dance and uh, hit it off. My mother was a math major. That's in the what I'm getting to. That's what I'm getting to here. 
She was a math major in the 1950s when it wasn't fashionable for Mm -hmm. young ladies to Mm -hmm. do that, but she did it anyway. My dad was a business major and really took the talents of both of them together at that time with no computers because my my mom could do the calculation of exponential moving averages on a paper ledger, and then they would plot it on paper graph paper. And so I grew up where... Having the the business channel of it was KWHY TV in in California. It was a local UHF station that had business news before CNBC, before FNN, mm-hmm. before any of that. They had, were a local station that had business news, and they invented the scrolling ticker on the bottom of the screen. And they had a they had a end of the day uh, chart analysis program called Charting the Market with Gene Morgan uh, that people would watch and. <laughs> Gene Morgan would look at charts of stocks and he taught thousands and thousands of Californians that you could look at a chart and get useful information from it. And and this was in an era when chart analysis was just considered yeah, taboo, voodoo and taboo. Taboo. Right, right, right. Yeah, you yeah. didn't, respectable people didn't do that yeah, sort that of thing. Yeah, that was voodoo, market voodoo. Yeah, but he, he showed that there was some value to it. And so they were big fans of his show. I grew up with that just being in the background and like, doesn't everybody look at charts all the time? Isn't that <laughs> how you do it? Uh, and, and in fact, uh, I got my start. My my parents helped arrange for me to buy one share of Disney stock when I was six years old. Mm-hmm. And so I got to go to Disneyland and walk around like I owned the place because I was, I was a shareholder. Did they get you the certificate too? No, I, I remember they would, they would mail me the quarterly dividend mm-hmm. checks. I, you know, I did get a check in the mail for 15 cents and I'd endorse it and I'd hand it my dad and he'd reach in his pocket and hand me a dime and a nickel. And that, you know, that was part of my upbringing. And he, my dad even taught me how to chart the uh, daily bar chart of Disney's price. And, and uh, there was, there was one time in 1970, my dad was a guest on KWHY TV and he brought along my hand-drawn chart of Disney. Nice. So I like I like to say that my my technical analysis work has been before the public since 1970. <laughs> I love it. Let's go back to seasonality. That was good because I, I, I again I've heard you talk about your parents so many times, and I was just like every time you said like every single time you said it, I'm thinking I wonder how they met and how that got to be, you know. Um, but that's great. So so and please send my regards. Um, the the. The seasonality is what other, so we know that we have the end of year Santa Claus rally, whatever you want to call it. We have the January effect. Okay, fine. You talk about some scary, spooky 2024 stuff going on. What, what is that about? Well, that's not about seasonality. Um, the, although seasonality is a feature every year, We've, you get a top in the summertime and you get weakness in July and August and September, That's uh, but that can get amplified by other factors, especially when you have an election year. Most of the time when you have a first term president in office, like we have right now, election years are up years, most of the time. Uh, in the event that you have an election year that is a down year, it is it is death for whoever is in in party in in in, in whatever party is in power in the White House. And so, for example, two thousand was a down year, and we got a change in leadership. Uh, two thousand eight was a down year, uh, but those were second term election years. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, when you have a first term president in office, whoever gets elected follows a standard strip. 
script, when you get elected, you you get in office and you start discovering that, oh, my gosh, everything is even worse than I, what I told you during the campaign. And that the <laughs> only solution to all these problems is, you know, whatever the guy wants to get Congress to pass, whether it's taxes or spending or some new implement thing to get implemented. And so during the first two years of a, of a new president's term, the market tends to go sideways because investors, like everyone else, they get bummed out hearing that, every, that everything's worse than it was supposed to be. But then during the last two years, that a, that a new president is in office, he has to switch gears from saying everything's horrible to now saying everything's better because I fixed it. And so please reelect me. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the third year of a presidential term is nearly always an up year, uh, except for like 1939 when the Wehrmacht was marching through Poland. Uh, if you have conditions like that, the third year is not so good. Yeah. And, and generally, the election year is good because you have the party in power running for office and declaring however, how great everything is. And saying things are going to be great if you elect me and, and keep me in office. And so that t tends to flow through into mood and mood flows through into buying decisions. And so you generally get an up year during election year. We have something different coming this time and not because of anything that Joe Biden has done as president. We have signs from a big leading indication that I follow, which is crude oil. Uh, one of the things I discovered about a decade ago, I was looking at long term behavior of crude oil prices. And I realized, hey, this looks a lot like the, the the chart of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So I put the two of them on the chart together and it was a little bit dissatisfying because they didn't quite line up like I thought. But after a little bit of tinkering, I moved the data fore and aft a little bit and found out that crude oil prices tend to lead the stock market by about 10 years. So whatever crude oil prices are doing now, moving up or down, that tells you what stock prices are going to be doing 10 years from today, which is fascinating. And this is all relevant because in 2014, starting from a top in June of 2014, we saw a big crash in crude oil prices as part of the fracking boom. And OPEC decided they could no longer fight the fracking boom going on in the U.S. and they stopped trying to hold up oil prices and oil just collapsed. Well, so the echo of that is coming in 2024, 10 years after that 2014 oil price crash. And that's going to be happening in the latter half of 2024 assuming that this relationship, which has been working for over 100 years, continues to work. And so I, I, I was saying to my subscribers back in 2019 that 2019, this is four years ago, I said, irrespective of whoever gets elected in 2020, that party is not going to be able to hold the White House in 2024 because of this big decline in the stock market that is coming. And uh, big declines in the stock market are not good for the party in power. We are not to yet to that point where the big decline is something we have to face. We are still riding the 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 echo of oil prices uptrend in late 2013 and early 2024, and there's still a few more months of that uptrend. But late 2024 uh, is when we get that echo, and it's going to be an ugly time. Dare I ask what the relationship is, or it doesn't matter? It's it's natural for any human. To wonder why something works, and I am in that camp also. Uh, but at some point, if it works well enough for long enough, and you give up asking the why question because you see, well, it does work, and even if I can't explain it, even if I don't know why the light turns brighter when I flip the switch on the wall, I, I know that it does, and you accept it. Uh, I don't think that what happens in oil causes 
the changes in the stock market. I think that there are things, there are phenomena that I refer to as liquidity waves that move through the different financial markets. And a liquidity wave can hit one market first and then hit another market later. So for example, we see changes in gold prices getting echoed about 20 months later in long-term bond yields. And we see changes in crude oil prices getting echoed about 10 years later in the stock market. And we see gold prices also showing up a, a year later in grain prices and about 15 months later in coffee prices. That's the same wave going through separate markets, but it hits them sequentially. So it's not like something that happens to gold causes interest rates to change. It's a liquidity wave that passes through the gold market first, and it passes through the bond market later. It passes through the crude oil market first, and it passes through the stock market later. It's just that you get an indication from watching the leader uh, behave in the way it does of what that underlying uh, undercurrent is doing. And it's it's not a cause and effect. It's just an indication. So, you, but, but does, what does that have to do with then this topic that we discussed of crude oil and bond yields that predictively will be going back up in December, but then, then cycle, is it going to be cycled down in, in early 2024? So let me just kind of set the stage here. So we talked about the bullish seasonality into the end of the year and possibly into the beginning of the year. We talk about the concern about the end or latter part of 2024 because of the 10 year uh, correlation trend with oil for, for markets and due to uh, the presidential issue happening, right? You know, with, with that. But what now gives us the idea here that crude oil and bond yields are going to head back up in December and down in early 2024? So that's that gap period, early 2024, right? So we talked about the end of year trend, the uh, end of 2024 potential uh, correlation with the oil prices. And now we're filling the gap with early 2024, Am I well, right? separate markets. So we got to take it, take it apart and look at each of them separately. And when right. we talk about bullish seasonality, I'm talking about for the stock market, mm -hmm. the expectation for crude oil prices to move up into the end of 2023 and the expectation for bond yields to move up into the end of 2023. Both of those expectations come from the way that both of those markets lag the movements in gold prices. And so, twenty months. Uh, the the lag time in, for between gold and crude oil is about nineteen point eight months. For gold versus interest rates, it's about twenty and a half months. So they're slightly different by about three weeks difference. And but gold uh, twenty months ago was starting to move up again, and so that means that bond yields should be moving up and crude oil should be moving up into the end of the year. They're not doing that right now for uh, some interesting reasons. Although, as we're talking here on November 9th, we saw a bad auction of new 30-year debt, and that sent uh, bond prices down, uh, bond yields up, and it didn't help that uh, the, the, there was a, apparently a ransomware attack on the Industrial Commercial Bank of China, which disrupted trading and treasury debt. So your mileage may vary day to day, but the, the point is that bond yields and crude oil prices are due to head up into the end of 2023, topping probably in mid-December. And then both of those are going to trend down in 2024, echoing a down move that gold prices had uh, 20 months prior. Hmm. Pretty fascinating.
That is fascinating. fascinating. I have no yeah. idea why it works that way, <laughs> but it's been working that way for years. And that's we're we're breaking the code on on how the financial markets behave. So you, so so with the gold trade as an example, you talk about it being in a cyclical upswing. Are you pretty heavy in gold as an example, or would you be heavy saying, oh, if I was to build a portfolio, I'd be heavy in gold now until the bottom, or you know, for or, or again, I'm just making this up as we go in terms of hypothetical, but I'm trying to get some usability out of this heavy in gold only if you're a nimble trader uh gold is not a good investment right now uh there are two different cycles that operate in gold prices that are very dominant one is a shorter cycle it's 13 and a half months and right now we are in the ascending phase of gold's 13 and a half month cycle mm -hmm. uh, and but we are in the descending phase of a longer eight year cycle in gold so you, you can have different cycles working at the same time because they're always working, but and they can be moving in different directions. Uh, at some point, the 13 and a half month cycle is going to top out and you're going to have that cycle pointing down as, along with the eight year cycle pointing down. Uh, the eight year cycle is scheduled to ideally bottom in early 2025, but it can be plus or minus six months and still be considered normal in terms of punctuality. And so yes, if you want to be a trader, I, I would say that uh, gold has gotten its over, self oversold in the last week, but has started a big, nice up move in October, and that up move should resume itself. The pullback uh, has caught itself right at a 382 retracement level on the chart of December gold. It's a nice place to stop. And so gold should start rebounding again. So if you're a nimble trader and want to trade gold, yeah, it's good. But remember, gold doesn't do anything except sit there. And, and in fact, it costs you money to store it. Uh, so if you put your money into gold, you're missing out on earning five and a half percent interest on a six month T-bill. Sure. So yeah. you have to be really sure of yourself to on a, miss out on that opportunity to to get interest in, and own gold. And, and the higher interest rates go, that has a, a feedback effect of making gold less attractive. We are in that uh, cycle right now with gold uh, still trending down and it's toward its eight-year low due in early 2025. And so all that it offers right now is trading opportunities within that long-term downtrend. So uh, to take a quick break, a commercial break for Tom McClellan. How do people find out uh, where to get your stuff and, and and how to read your various letters and reports and the 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 daily editions and all that? I'm not that hard to find if you Google Tom McClellan. Our, our website is mcoscillator.com. That's a contraction of the McClellan Oscillator that my parents created. Uh, we have a newsletter. We have a daily edition. We have a bunch of free articles on the website. You can take a look there. Uh, and uh, we'll be happy to talk more about that as the interview continues. So uh, the... the um, it's interesting because we've seen a lot of uh, – so I'm going to sc scoot back to the McClellan Oscillator for a second here. Um, we've seen a lot of very simple – well, let's do this. Let's explain this This for his first. There's complex and there's simple. You know what I'm talking about. Um, and can you explain what the differential is? First, let's start with the McClellan Oscillator again, uh, talking about the AD line and all the stuff that you put in with the 95% and 5% and all the good, good stuff that you put in. Um, but basically tell people what it does and then – the differential readings that you get on it. Sure. Well, the McClellan oscillator is this indicator that my parents came up with in 1969. They didn't name it. Uh, that guy, uh, Gene Morgan, who had the chart in the market show. Uh, uh, he Gene Morgan again. Gene Morgan, he put out a call to his viewers, said, anybody's got an interesting chart, give him a call and bring it on. So my dad and mom, my mom had been working on this, uh, looking at uh, advanced decline data, because that was another way of seeing what the stock market does. 
Uh, you know, you can look at the, the major price averages like the S&P 500 or the Dow or back then the Amex index, because that was what a oh, lot of people that at. one. Yeah. And uh, uh, but those are going to be dominated by the biggest stocks because they're weighted by capitalization or in the case of the Dow, they're weighted by price. So you may not be getting the message about what the whole market is doing with the advanced decline statistics. It's much more egalitarian where every stock gets one vote and it, and everybody has an equal vote. And so. The reason that is useful is that the is that most of the stocks are small cap stocks uh, and small cap stocks are much more sensitive to liquidity. So if liquidity is great, you'll see small caps performing well. You'll see the advanced decline statistics doing well and a strong, good liquidity tends to be a condition that lasts for a while. When liquidity starts to turn bad, the big cap stocks can continue having a party like we saw in 1999 and 2000. But the, if the advanced decline data are weak, then that tells you liquidity is poor. And what liquidity is there is being marshaled into the big stocks to keep them going and keep the indices rising. So you're looking at advanced decline statistics to, to see what is the health of that canary in the coal mine. Uh, back at 200 years ago in Newcastle, England, they would put canary birds into a coal mine because uh, bad gases like methane were invisible, uh, but they could kill coal miners, and the canaries were much more sensitive to it. So if you and see much, the canary, much singing, more reasonable to much more reasonable to to risk a canary's life than a coal miner. Yeah, well, <laughs> but they and they would die first. Yeah, the, the canaries were very sensitive to the bad gases that sometimes existed yeah. in the coal mine. And so if the canary was happy and singing, everybody's fine, and let's mine some coal. If the canary, canary falls over dead, get your butt out of the coal mine because there might be. <laughs> bad gases. That's what looking at advanced decline statistics does for us is it tells us about the health of the liquidity. What my parents did back in the 1960s, they were fans of a guy named Pete Harlan, who was an actual rocket scientist at Jet Propulsion Lab in in, uh, in, in Pasadena, mm -hmm. and who in his side, as a side gig, ran a, a, a firm called the Trade Levels Report, wrote a newsletter, and he was noteworthy because he was the first guy, at least west of the Mississippi, to use a computer for stock market analysis oh, because he had, fancy. he had access to one fancy. at JPL. Mm -hmm. So he, he did his normal job during the day of doing rocket science stuff. And then he'd come home and he'd uh, take a stack of IBM cards and he'd punch price data into, into the little holes and punch out the cheds on the IBM cards. And, and then when the computer wasn't busy at night, he'd run processes and calculate exponential moving averages. And, and he, they called it the 10% trend or the 5% trend or the 1% trend just to refer to how fast the exponential moving average would track the data. Well, they were, my parents were big fans of his, and he looked at these different exponential moving averages, including for advanced decline data, but he looked at each of the exponential moving averages on its own. And then the key insight that my parents had was, well, what about the difference between one moving average versus another moving mm -hmm. average? And that came to be known as the McClellan oscillator. Uh, a few years later, a guy named Gerald Appel took up that same idea and created what he called uh, moving average convergence divergence or MACD. MACD. Everybody likes the MACD. The but MACD. it was my parents that were the first ones to say, well, let's look at the difference between two moving averages. And so what when they do that with the McClellan oscillator for the advanced decline data, what you're getting is an accelerometer on what the advanced decline data are doing. It's a very sensitive one. So if the breadth is positive, uh, the McClellan oscillator will generally move higher. If the breadth is negative, it'll move lower, but it'll be varying amounts and it'll depend on what the moving average has been, has been doing lately. So there's some smoothing of the day that goes on. 
if you see a positive McClellan oscillator reading, meaning it's above zero, then that says that the acceleration in the AD data is upward. If you see a negative reading, uh, meaning below zero, that means that the acceleration has been downward. And But you can get uh, additional insights by looking at the structure on charts. So you can see, for example, divergences versus prices, where you see the prices making a higher highs and higher lows, but the oscillator might be making lower highs to say that uh, each successive wave is happening on diminished energy, which is a warning sign that there might be a reversal coming. We, you also referenced complex versus simple. Yeah. So that refers to looking at the structure of the McClellan oscillator on a chart, which doesn't translate well to radio. But if you look at a chart of the McClellan oscillator and you see a bunch of moving up and down while it's above zero, that's what we call a complex structure. And complex means that side is the side that's in charge. So if it's complex above zero, the bulls are in charge. If it's complex below zero, the bears are in charge. The simple structure means that the oscillator just goes across zero and then turns around and goes back without building any complexity. And that's a sign that uh, that side is not in charge. You see that on a counter trend rally where you just get a minor pop and then you get back to going downtrend again. Or you see it in an uptrend like we're in right now where you might get a, a brief pullback, a little dip below zero, but then it starts going up again above zero. So that simple structure says that side is not in charge. The other side likely is the trend direction. And so that's what that's for. The, it, this is getting really deep in the weeds about how to interpret it, but that's the beauty of looking at a chart is you can see indications from seeing what the data look like over a period of days, and you can get some insights and read those tea leaves and, and get some good answers. You know, when you talk about the discussion about, you know, looking at the advanced decline and seeing, who, you know, where the players are, indices moving up and a lot of markets not and the breath is bad and you see that the indices are still holding up because the large caps are holding it up. Uh, and, and that's not really the best sign in the world for that. We've seen that many times and more more so as the large caps even got bigger because it's much easier to a degree for the big boys, if you will, to move the markets or hold the markets by holding the big stocks. Well, when that happens, you may call it something. I call it, and I and I call it a sinkhole alert. It's it's the top of the street is still paved very nicely, but underneath is a cave-in that's happening. And it only takes a little bit to actually pop the rest of it, and then there go the indices. That's a very good analogy. I like that. And and that condition can last for a while. Yeah, a long time. We've seen it, it. We've seen it, it many times. It's all during 1999. Year. Yeah. This year, the beginning of the year was the same thing. When, when we saw the, the SoftBank uh, gamma squeeze, that's all that was going on there. Markets were coming up. And you know what? The average person that is an index-based investor loves that. They don't care. The other people who are broad spectrum or even um, stock pickers seem to not like that as much. And I understand it because now, uh, you know, you may get be getting the, the bank, the energies and utilities whacked while the technology is holding up and the NASDAQ's up a half percent and the S&P's up 20 basis points. But you look around, you know, your AD line is, you know, five to one negative, you know what I'm saying? And, and the, but the indices look like, oh, nothing happened here. And that, and that matters because the condition of strong liquidity or poor liquidity, that tends to last for a while. And not just one day. Mm -hmm. It's a it's an underlying. Uh, it's like the tide versus a wave in the ocean. It's it's a, a tide that persists. And so, illiquidity 
might not matter for a while to the big cap stocks while it's, while it's mattering to all the small cap stocks and you're seeing really poor breath data, but eventually it will matter when, and the big cap stocks will get hurt. And so when you're seeing that, it's a, it's a notification that there's trouble. It's not a signal. It's a condition, not a signal. So just because you see a weak advanced decline line, which we're not seeing now, but if you, if you do see that it's a, it's a warning sign to be looking out for it. It's not a guarantee that, it, that the condition is going to matter at this moment, just because you noticed it, but it's a warning sign that there's trouble out there and, and there's liquidity problems. Well, lots of stuff to cover. Like you said, not everything I can visualize this because I look at your stuff all the time. So I, you know, you start talking about this. I'm like, look, my, I'm, I'm gazing away, thinking at the looking uh, as, as I'm looking at the uh, chart virtually, if you will. You know, so I encourage everybody to go over to uh, to, to Tom's site. Tom, tell us again what the site is. It's MC Oscillator, like McClellan Oscillator. It's just, uh, it's like a McNugget. It's a McOscillator. <laughs> MCOscillator.com. You can see samples of our daily edition and our twice monthly newsletter. You can see all, all the articles in our free learning center. You can sign up to get our free weekly chart and focus article series, where every week I focus on one chart and look at what it, the message is for what it can, what it does tell us, what it can tell us, how to use it. Uh, it's a, just a way of getting more people acquainted with the work that we do and the tools that we use. Yeah. And we'll put all the information on also how to get in touch with you on the discipline So the show notes for episode number 842. Tom McClellan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. All right, thanks. And thanks, Tom. Of course, I mean, Tom McClellan comes with just an incredible array of information, a volcano of information that just keeps on coming out. And what's amazing about Tom McClellan and the interviews I've done with him over the years is that we look at things that are tried and, and tested and true. We look at the the ability for him to look back many, many years at all these different functions and indicators and trend lines and charting and technical analysis and actually say, you know, this works, this doesn't, and do some really interesting things with offsetting and transitional type of, of work, oscillation and trend changes. And what I think we all need to take from that is that it's, what's fascinating is that it, it, it has worked for years and it continues to work and Tom brings it to us. So make sure to go over to Tom's site Grab the things that he has available for you to check out each and every week. He sends me something, uh, which is very helpful. And of course, the webinar next week, go over to disciplineinvestor.com and register. Thanks a lot. I'll see you again soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates the host of the show or any of the